Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Sekeshida is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of Children's Programs at the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training at Braille Institute. Tonight, uh, we are talking about pediatric conditions, eye conditions that can affect vision and hearing, and the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is a considered a it's not to be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information that will help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So, Dr. Bill, thank you so much for your um, your great expertise in this lecture tonight. Oh, thank you very much, Sue, and I appreciate you and Braille Institute for sponsoring these. Uh, every month we have one of these programs on. And I don't know, Sue, this might be our third year that we're doing this, so <laughs> easy. there's... there's, easy there's pardon yeah. me? I think it's easily our third year. I think we're actually going on our fifth year, believe it or not. Oh, gosh. So uh, <laughs> for all of you who might be interested in learning about a lot of these things related to children's vision and vision development, you can simply go to the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org, and there you could find every one of these programs that we have lectured on. And these programs are recorded by Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA, and you could also find them there at Airs LA at www.airsla.org. So first of all, I'd like to say Happy New Year to each and every one of you, and I hope that this year brings you the best of health, happiness, and prosperity. You know, the first topic that we're talking about for this year is a little bit different because it's not strictly about vision. We're talking about those types of visual conditions that are associated with hearing problems. And when we think of children who may have a visual and a hearing problem, we can truly understand how important it is that we do provide the child with the early intervention treatments to help these children to be able to interact with their environment, to learn how to communicate, and to help them to be able to integrate and socialize. Now, the first condition that we're going to talk about are congenital cataracts. And many of us have heard the term cataracts. We often think of our grandparents who developed a cataract with age. And that is true. The number one cause of cataracts among adults is aging. But it is also possible that children may be born with congenital cataracts. And if a child is born with a congenital cataract, it may also be associated with a hearing impairment. When a child has a congenital cataract, one of the causes may be that the child has a genetic abnormality. These genetic abnormalities may affect the way that the crystalline lens inside the eye is developed. Normally, the crystalline lens inside the eye, it's transparent, so it will allow light rays to pass through that lens, and that crystalline lens can change shape to allow a child to focus at different distances. Well, if there is a genetic abnormality, this can affect the development of the crystalline lens, and that crystalline lens may be clouded. In some cases, it might be yellow. Other cases, it could be very, very brown. Other times, it might be even sort of a gray appearance. And when a person has a cataract, the severity of the cataract, it may vary. There may be some cataracts that are mild, and for these children, they're able to see people, they're able to see a television, but in order to see the details, they do have to get very, very close. One of the signs of a cat, child with a cataract is that if you do take them outdoors, they often are very bothered by the direct sunlight. They may not even open their eyes when they're outside in the direct sunlight. So that's a sign that the child may, in fact, have a cataract. Another way is that you can simply look at the child's eyes itself. Every person has a pupil, which is the black circular opening in the center of the iris, which is the colored part of the eye. 
if you look at yourself in the mirror and let's say that you have blue eyes, there is a black circle in the very center. And that is actually an opening called the pupil. And immediately behind the pupil is where the crystalline lens is. Now, in many children, you may find that that crystalline lens, it's actually colored. It might be a yellowish color. It might be a white color. It might be slightly gray. And if you do notice that it does not appear black, there's a very good chance that that child does have a cataract. Or it's also a possibility that the child may have a tumor that is called retinoblastoma. Anytime that you observe a child and you look at the pupil of the eye that it is not black, you want to have that child be examined by an eye doctor immediately. I don't recommend that you go to the pediatrician, but it's important to go to an eye doctor because the eye doctor has a special instrumentation that's needed to look at that. Now, it is more likely that a pupil that is not black, it is due to a cataract. And the good thing about a cataract is that cataracts are very treatable. In fact, in the United States, cataracts are the most successful surgical treatment in which the clouded lens of the eye, it can be removed, and then it can later be replaced with an artificial lens implant. Another thing, though, is that it is also possible that the pupil that is not completely black, it may have a opacity that can be a tumor called retinoblastoma. Now, the reason that we say that it is so urgent to have the child examined right away is that if, if it is the retinoblastoma tumor, the retinoblastoma tumor is something that can spread throughout the rest of the body, and it can cause death. So it's very important that if it is a retinoblastoma tumor, that it's identified early and that treatments can be performed. For some children, it may mean that there's going to be radiation. Other times, that it may be surgery. In cases that it seems to be spreading, unfortunately, the eye has to be removed. And by removing the eye, we reduce the risk of the tumor spreading through the other parts of the body. So when we do see the pupil not being totally black, we want to be seen, again, by a pediatric eye doctor who could make that particular type of determination. Now, when a child has been examined by the pediatric eye doctor, the doctor can make that determination as to, number one, how clearly is the child able to see? Not all children who have cataracts must have eye surgery. Some cataracts may be very small. Some may only affect your peripheral vision. But others might be more severe, and they may need that type of surgery. When we talk about the surgery, it is a surgical procedure that is very successful and is very, very quick. In the olden days, in the 1960s and 70s, when a person had cataract surgery, nearly half of the eye would have to be cut open, and that would allow the lens to be removed. But today, there's other types of procedures that could be used that only a very small hole is used to protrude the eye, and that will then dissolve the cataract. And for some children, the surgeon may elect to put in an artificial lens implant in the eye at that time. But in other cases, the surgeon may say, let's not put the implant in now. Let's wait for the eye to grow because we know that the child's prescription will change quite a bit. Now, after a child has received cataract surgery, it's urgent that they are fit with glasses or a contact lens or a combination of the two to enable the light rays to focus onto the retina so that the visual centers of the brain will eventually become stimulated. If we review the way that vision occurs, the light rays from whatever the child is looking at in the world, they come into the pupil and they focus by the crystalline lens 
onto the retina, which is a tissue on the very inside of the eye. The retina then has fibers that then will send the information to the very, very back portion of the brain where the visual information is then processed. So you could see that vision is very complex in that vision does not take place in the eye, but vision involves both the eyes and the brain. And it's very critical, especially during the first three years of life, during those first three years of life, we need to stimulate those visual cells in the back of the brain. Now, if we have a child who has been born with a cataract and the light rays are not coming in to focus on the eye properly, the brain cells do not develop. And as a result, these children do not have clear vision. Let's take a story, for example. Let's say that we had a child, and this is a child who was born with cataracts in both eyes. But this child lived in a different country where there were not high-level eye doctors. And this child came to the United States at the age of five years. When the child came to the United States, the child was examined by the pediatrician. pediatrician saw that there's a cataract, refers the child to the ophthalmologist, and the ophthalmologist confirms, yes, there are cataracts in each eye. Let's remove the cataracts. When they remove the cataracts and then put an artificial lens implant in the eye, they then measure the vision of the child, and they're very, very shocked to find that this child is not able to see clearly. Why is this child not able to see clearly? Was there a mistake in the cataract surgery? No. It was proper to do the cataract surgery to allow light to get in the eye. Was the prescription of the implant wrong? They double-check it? No. But the reason that that child does not see well, even after receiving cataract surgery, is because the brain cells in the back of the brain called the occipital of the brain, do not know how to process that information. And this is something that is called amblyopia, A-M-B-L-Y-O-P-I-A. And I can't tell you how many times that we see children who have amblyopia, and the reason that they have amblyopia is because they did not receive a vision exam during the first early years of life. All infants should have a complete vision exam by a pediatric optometrist or a pediatric ophthalmologist by the age of six months. And the reason for that is if we could then identify the problem and begin the treatment, we know that during those first five years, those brain cells will then develop. Another common associated factor with cataracts and hearing impairment, aside from genetics, it may also be when a child has suffered from rubella infection. There's many young babies that suffer from a rubella infection, and this will be a condition that causes both, again, the cataracts and that type of hearing impairment. When these children have this type of a vision and hearing impairment, they're often very, very uncomfortable. When people go to pick them up, it often startles them because they didn't see nor did they hear that person coming to pick them up. Many times they become so startled when people come to pick them up that they prefer to be isolated. They cry and they fuss any time that they're picked up. They don't like to be touched. Any type of caressing is something that they do not like. And this is something that will make parents very often feel terrible. Why is it that my baby doesn't like it if I carry him or her? Well, it is, again, because that child didn't see you coming as you picked up that baby. Or the child didn't hear you. So it's very, very important that for these children who have cataracts and hearing impairment, We use some modifications 
We want to make certain that we decorate the home in a way that we have appropriate lighting that will help the child to see. We want to use bold contrast. We might use some bold red, bold blue paint. We might have stripes so that the child could see different areas of the wall. We might use different toys so as we come up to pick up the baby, we can have a flashlight with a glittering toy and we might move that flashlight because most children who do have cataracts are able to see something and they will then know you're going to come and pick up that baby. You should also talk to the baby because not all children with hearing impairment are completely deaf. A lot of times, just the difference of the vibration of your voice, or you might lower or raise your voice, those different pitches could be heard. You might tap onto the crib so they could feel the vibration or the sensation of the tap. Or you might tap onto the mattress, and that forewarns the baby that you're there, and you're now going to come and gently pick up the baby. These are some of the ways that you can approach that child very, very well. And for these children, again, if they do have a congenital cataract, we always refer them to have their hearing evaluated because it's quite common that very young children can be hit with, fit with different types of hearing aid devices. Or we have some children who are even receiving some very high technological devices such as the cochlear implant, where a surgical device is inserted into the ear and these children are able to hear, and without that device, they are not able to hear. Now, another eye condition besides cataracts that can affect hearing as well is premature birth. We often will see children who have retinopathy of prematurity because their children are born very, very prematurely. But the children who are born prematurely may also have hemorrhaging within the brain. We sometimes will see children who are born prematurely have these vision problems, but they may also have a hearing problem. The hemorrhaging may be something that affects the auditory nerve. And as a result, these children don't hear well. It may be on one side or it may be on both sides. When they have the combination of the hearing impairment and the retinopathy of prematurity, these children may be so, so involved that they don't see anything, and it may be that, that they don't hear anything. One of the kinds of tests that we will do as a screening with young infants we will often clap our hands just two times very sharply and we will observe, does the baby close the eyelids after you clap your hands? This is called the auditory blink reflex. And when you do this, we recommend that you do this at the end of your screening because if the child does hear it, they usually will end up crying because they're startled. But you can do that type of a screening to get an understanding as to whether or not this child seems to be able to hear. Now, with retinopathy of prematurity, this is a condition that most often affects children born before 32 weeks of gestation. The reason that this is a significant time is that a child who is born before 32 weeks gestation usually does not have the full development of the blood vessels in the retina. As a result, there are tissues in the retina that die because they don't receive appropriate blood supply. The retina, again, is a tissue in the eye that absorbs light and converts it into electrical signals that allows the brain to process it. So if there are regions of the retina that do not receive that type of blood supply, those cells die, the retina dies, and that region of the retina is essentially dead. It will not have that ability to see. But fortunately, we're finding now that with many children who are born prematurely, ophthalmologists who specialize in diseases of the retina are examining these children 
and they can see if there are problems while the child is still at the hospital. One of the problems may be that there are blood vessels that are bleeding in the eye, and they are now able to treat it so that those blood vessels will not bleed. Laser could be used to stop that bleeding, and there are also other medications now that could be used. These types of medications are also being used for adults with macular degeneration. And by injecting this medication, this is a way that we could stop the bleeding in the eye without causing scar tissue. Now, the reason that it's so important to try to stop the bleeding in the eye of children with retinopathy of prematurity is that if the eye continues to bleed, it will create scar tissue and the scar tissue can then detach the retina and cause total blindness. So it's very, very important that all children born prematurely must have their eyes examined regularly, very regularly, and it should continue for the rest of their life. Many people think that if the child was born prematurely and nothing has happened to the vision after the first year of life, Everything is okay. But that is not true because these children at a later time may develop this kind of bleeding and leakage and they could suffer from retinal detachments and other types of problems. Another type of eye condition that is associated with hearing impairment is called CHARGE syndrome. And just as it sounds, C-H-A-R-G-E syndrome. This is a genetic condition in which there are many abnormalities within the development of the body of that child. The C stands for coloboma. And coloboma means there's incomplete development of a part or a structure of the body or of the eye. And for these children, it's often a coloboma of the iris of the eye so if you pull down the lower eyelid of the child, you may notice that there's a notch that is missing in the iris. And when you look at the colored part of this child's eye, it almost looks like an old-fashioned door lock where they had the skeleton keys. So this is called a iris coloboma. And children who have an iris coloboma are very sensitive to light because they cannot regulate the amount of light that completely comes into the eye. The coloboma may also extend to affect the bottom of the entire eye. And as a result, they may have a retinal coloboma where there is no retina on the bottom of the eye. And they may also have a choroidal coloboma. And the choroid is the tissue in the eye that provides the eye with its blood supply. So if the choroid doesn't develop in the bottom of the eye, then the retina doesn't develop in the bottom of the eye, and these children will not have a functioning retina on the bottom. The coloboma may also extend to affect the optic nerve, and as a result, information from the eye is not sent completely to the brain. And these colobomas may also extend down to the palate, to the lip, and all the way down even to the heart. So these children with CHARD syndrome, we may see that there's a whole wedge of the body that has not fully developed. There is no treatment for these types of colobomas in the sense that there is no surgery that can be done to replace a tissue that is missing. Now, in CHARGE syndrome, the first letter stands for the C, the coloboma, usually of the eyes and the, the palate. H is that they often have a hole in their heart. E is that they have problems with their ears. A stands for the atrosa of the chong, which is a structure within the skull. R is that they often have mental retardation. G 
is there's problems often with their gastrointestinal system, and they may also have abnormal genitalia. And E is that, again, they're going to often have difficulties with their hearing and their ears. So these children may have multiple types of difficulties, and it may be something that affects vision and hearing as well. So again, for these children, we do make these accommodations to make certain that the home is going to be well illuminated to allow that child to see better. We want to use the proper colors and contrasts. For example, if we're going to feed the baby milk, let's pour the milk into a cup that is contrasting to the color of milk so it makes it easier for the child to see it. We don't want to serve milk in a white cup because the child won't be able to see the milk. But if we pour it into a dark purple cup or a dark red cup, the child could see the difference in color between the white milk and the red cup. Similarly, if we're feeding the child different types of foods, if the child is able to eat puddings or other soft foods, we want to use that type of color in contrast. We want to use a contrasting border. We like to use cafeteria trays. And let's say that we have a red cafeteria tray. We may then go ahead and line that with a white placemat. And then we're going to put a red plate on the white placemat. So we have this combination of red, white, and red. This will help the child to be able to see his or her plate. Many of you may not think about this, but for a person who is low vision, when they look at something, they often can't even see that it's there. I know that when I was going through my change where I was losing my vision, we were invited to a fancy dinner type of function, and it was beautiful. The table was set. It was white tablecloth. There were all these cups that I could tell were on the table just by the way that people were picking them up. But one thing that I didn't know is I didn't know if there were any plates on that table. So I actually had to reach out with my hands and feel, and oh my gosh, there were so many plates. But I wasn't able to see it because they were white plates on a white tablecloth, and we had white food. (laughs) There were mashed potatoes, and there was white fish, and my vision, the way it was, everything just looked white. So I thought there was nothing there at all. So we could use this type of color contrast when we're working with a child with low vision and also with playing with a child with low vision. Another type of a condition that is associated with vision impairment and hearing is a condition that's called Lieber's congenital amaurosis, and more often it is going to be retinitis pigmentosa with hearing impairment, which is called Usher's syndrome. Now, with Usher's syndrome, this includes retinitis pigmentosa and this type of hearing impairment. The hearing impairment is something that may be variable in terms of the severity And the vision impairment is also something that may be variable, but it often begins to affect kids after the age of five years of age. And with a retinitis pigmentosa, the first thing that you may notice is that these children have significant difficulty seeing under dim illumination. If you take them into a dim room, they may not crawl. They may just lie flat on their back. If they're older and you take them to the auditorium at school, they may not feel comfortable in there. You may also notice, number two, that aside from poor night vision is that they have very poor peripheral vision. If you toss a ball to them, they may not even flinch because they may not even see that ball coming towards them. Number three, for these kids, they often will have scuffed shoes, And the knees on their pants or on their dresses may be scuffed because these kids very frequently trip and fall. 
These are the kids that they don't see the steps and the curbs, or if they're in the parking lot, they don't see the concrete little steps that stop the car from rolling further, and they will then trip over them. These kids also will have a very difficult time if you take them from indoors to outdoors or outdoors to indoors. And the reason for that is because their eyes don't adjust quickly to different lighting levels. If you give them sunglasses, very often the sunglasses are too dark and they don't want to wear them. But if you don't give them sunglasses, then they're always squinting when they're outdoors. So for these types of children, they respond very well to prescription types of low vision aids. And many times we will prescribe very special types of filters. The filters are often going to be orange or red in color. And these colored filters will reduce the glare when they're outdoors, but they're not so dark that the child cannot function or cannot perform. We also recommend that we use hats. And if we give these kids a hat with a dark brim, that's going to be very, very good in terms of reducing the reflected light. We sometimes see kids that are wearing a real cute visor. It might be a white visor. But the problem with that is that when light bounces off of the concrete up to the visor, it then reflects the light into the eyes of the child. So try to find a hat or a visor that has a dark brim. That way reduce the different types of glare. When we are prescribing sunglasses for these kids too, we should also use a polarized lens because a polarized lens is very, very effective in reducing glare. If you are working with these children in the classroom as a speech pathologist and such, it's also very helpful to remember to position the child such that his or her back faces the windows and doors. If the child is facing the windows and doors, that type of glare literally bleaches the photopigment from the eye and reduces their vision. If they're going to be looking at the whiteboard or the dry erase board, it's better to use a gray dry erase board rather than a white dry erase board. When working on the computers, we also recommend it would be better to have a blue background rather than a very white background because the blue will also reduce glare and make things much more comfortable for these types of children. So low vision glasses and magnifiers and other devices are also things that we will recommend in our different types of reports for children with Usher's syndrome or if they have a form of Leber's congenital amaurosis along with a hearing impairment. Now, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to just quickly do an overview of what really happens when we see a child and we are going to evaluate that child who may or may not have a vision and hearing impairment. At the Center for the Partial Sighted, we have different clinics in different locations to make it more convenient for families here in Southern California. They are scheduled an appointment with a pediatric optometrist who has received specialized training in low vision. And the first thing is that we have our family caseworkers who do take a very in-depth history, and they will call the families before the appointment so that the parents will have more time to think about some of these questions or give us this information. And that information helps us to identify, in many cases, if there seems to be a family tendency for these types of disorders. If there is that type of family tendency of it, we often will refer for genetic testing because we're finding that so many of these types of vision and hearing diagnoses do have a genetic component. What's even more exciting now, though, is that with the advances in genetic engineering, we are really now finding that there are solutions in the field of genetic engineering that could help many of these kids. For example, with children who have a disease that's called 
Leber's congenital amaurosis, a very severe retinal disease, we have identified that there are specific genes that do not produce the proper protein and cause this type of vision loss. But we now know how to take the healthy gene sequence and insert it into the eyes of these children and these children's vision is returning to a significant level. And so this is something that I find to be very, very exciting with it implies that children who have genetic disorders, there's so much hope in the future. Now, one of the things that we're doing in our examination is we're measuring the child's functional vision. What colors do they see best? What is the best lighting? What is the best distance? Do they have depth perception? Are their eyes misaligned and they're seeing double vision? Does this child have peripheral vision? Will this child benefit from glasses or low vision aids? What kinds of computers and electronic technology might be most helpful? Does this child need the iPad or an Android tablet or the iPhone? What applications might help this child? And we look at all of these things that may be helpful for that child, and we also perform screenings of their hearing. One of the things that we do is that we will use a very small pen light to see if the child could see it, and we will also have a noise maker. It might be a little clicker to see, does the child turn his or her head towards the direction of the noise? If they don't do that, this may suggest that the infant has a hearing impairment. We will do the auditory clap reflex, where we clap our hands very loudly to see if the child will blink and close both eyes as they become startled with that. For kids who are a bit older, we will do other types of auditory screenings where we may ask that child to repeat a sequence of numbers that we said. Or we will say certain words that are similar and they will tell us if those two words were similar or if they were different. From there, we will have our family resource staff make these particular types of referrals along with the family to those professionals that would be needed. Could be an ear, nose, and throat specialist audiologists, genetic counselors, all sorts of different speech-language pathologists so that we could then make certain the child receives a complete assessment. And then we, as eye doctors, then write a complete report that's going to summarize all of this so this could then be referred back to the school district or to the regional center, and we develop a treatment plan in this way. So we find that overall, we could intervene very, very effectively. And we also see that there are many other patients who may be totally blind and totally deaf, but they're able to use other types of communication devices. Some of them are very similar to using a Braille keyboard and display. And it's very, very impressive to see how these folks who see nothing and hear nothing are able to gain employment doing the work that they want to do using this kind of equipment. So we work very closely with the school districts, the Department of Rehabilitation. Here in California, we have the Change a Life Foundation, which is a wonderful foundation that tends to help those who have attempted to gain the assistance from others but they have not succeeded. The Change of Life Foundation is one organization that's very helpful. We also get a lot of assistance from the Lions Club so that if we have a family who needs help in one way or the other, we could go to many of these different service organizations such as the Lions Club and they help. So overall, this is a very short, basic introduction to Uh, these different eye conditions that are associated with the hearing impairment. 
there are obviously many, many others that are associated with hearing impairment, and we could go into that at a, at a future date. We also do refer so many of our families to organizations such as the California Deaf and Blind. We also get them in touch with different people that we think are going to be very helpful support systems. For example, it could be other parents who have a child who is visual and hearing impaired. So it really becomes a very integrative, and we enjoy very much working with all of these different agencies. So we have about 10 minutes left, and I know we have a lot of people on the line this evening who are very experienced in the fields of hearing impairment. And I'm going to ask that if you have a question or just would like to share a comment or a bit of information, if you would unmute your phone, uh, you could introduce yourself and go ahead and, and share your information to everyone else. So if you do have a comment or a question, unmute your phone by pressing star six. Okay, Sue, do you have any mm -hmm. comments or questions? Well, I just want to thank you so much for that great um, lecture, Dr. Bill. I think it was really, really helpful. Um, and then you and you mentioned the um, California Deaf Blind Services, and I most of you probably are familiar with them, but they have a great uh, website with uh, information, fact sheets, resources, and links. And their website is www. .cadbs.org. And www.cadbs.org. Um, but I, even if you just Google California Deaf Blind Services, you'll be able to get the information. But they are um, a really, we, I've used them for, on several occasions, and um, they're just very, very helpful. Yeah, that's a really very, very helpful website. And their staff is really very, very wonderful. Does anybody else out there in the in the audience uh, have a comment or a question that they would like to share or ask? Yes, please. Would you uh, be able to announce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Lee Wygand. I'm a CHH itinerant teacher for Riverside County Office mm -hmm. of Education. And uh, you mentioned with um, Usher syndrome, that not to use a whiteboard, to use a gray board if possible. Well, so many classrooms have now switched over to either smart or Promethean boards. How are they for these children? Yes, for some children who do have Usher syndrome, if we use a white surface, such as the white surface on a dry erase board, or uh, some of the smart boards are just a white board, that could be sometimes too bright for them. And as they read, what you have written on that smart board or that dry erase board, it may be that within a matter of 15 minutes, their photopigments in the retina have become bleached and they cannot see it anymore or that they say that their eyes are tired, or you notice that they're not reading as well. So it's always helpful to look into those types of systems to see if there is a way that we could modify the color of the background. Now, I'm not as experienced with the most recent smart boards, but in the past what we have done with some of the earlier smart boards that were only a white background, we have solve that solution by using colored transparency. Just getting some transparent cellophane paper and we picked out the blue and we were able to, to put that over on top of the board so that the child would see a blue background with black print. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you have any other comments and things that you, you would like to add and maybe in the area of where do you recommend children should be evaluated? Should they be seen, first of all, by a speech-language pathologist, or should it be a ear, nose, and throat? Um, if a parent suspects that their child has a hearing problem, where should they go first? 
Well, hopefully the child will have been screened in the hospital when they're born because now they have the technology to do so. Uh, I know from the past I worked early start with Alhambra Unified School District and we received information that was sent from the hospital to the state who then sent it down to our SELPA and then we were notified to go and do a visit inform the parents that there were early start services available for them to help them to understand about their child's hearing loss and in some instances vision loss as well. We had vision itinerants do the same thing and just help the parents learn to make the most of their child's visual hearing. So. Definitely, doctor's exam is the most important thing for all parents. Oh, that's great mm-hmm. information. And uh, in the hospital, if a child shows some indication of a possible hearing impairment, what is the test that they will use on a newborn to test their hearing? They'll use an auditory brainstem response. Uh, the child is sleeping. It sends, like, things to the brain, and then they just pick up whether the child is, the brain has heard those sounds or not. It's wonderful technology. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that sounds like it's very easy to do for the child, too. They're sleeping, so that makes it very nice. Yes, it is. Great. Well, thank you very much, Lee. Oh, thank you, too, Dr. Bill. I really appreciate this. Is there anybody else out there who has a comment or bit of information that they would like to share with all of us? Is there anybody else who has a question about that? Well, we have a little bit of time left, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about one more thing. Um, One of the things that I, I find is just really very, very fascinating is with the advances in biotechnology. And what I mean by this is this is when we are using high levels of technology and integrating it with the human body and it's something that is successful. Now there is a company that is based in Silmar, California in the San Fernando Valley that was founded by Alfred Mann. And they have developed a technique in which a person who has a retinal disorder such as retinitis pigmentosa which is often associated with Usher's syndrome and hearing impairment, that these people can put on a pair of glasses. And these glasses has a very tiny camera right at the bridge. You would never know that it's a camera. Now, what that camera does is it takes pictures of everything out there in the world, and it sends electrical signals to a electronic chip that is planted underneath the retina. When the person looks at another human being or looks at a beach ball or looks at a a, a painting, for example, the camera sends those signals to the electrical chip. The electrical chips begin to send signals to the optic nerve, and those signals are then processed by the brain. And this particular type of technology has reversed blindness. It has been literally reversed blindness in people who have had retinitis pigmentosa. And what's even more amazing about this now is that this type of procedure is covered by Medicare, and it is something that's available for people today. Well, the same organization... Mr. Mann, Al Mann, his company also has developed the cochlear implant. And the cochlea is a structure in the middle ear which enables one to receive the auditory signals from what we hear and send those signals to the brain. Now, there are some children or some adults due to trauma or other problems that the cochlea does not work, and they have been able to implant an artificial cochlea in the ear, 
connect it to a small type of a computer, and these people who are deaf are able to hear. So because of the work of Al Mann and the companies that he has started, we now have biotechnology that can bring back vision and bring back hearing to people who are deaf and blind. And when we really think about how amazing this is, we could see that there's so much hope in the future because of the work and the research that's performed by all of these scientists. And I have had the pleasure of meeting so many of these people who have given given back their vision and been given back their hearing. That it, it is just so amazing. And, and when you talk to some of these people, you really get an understanding how important all of this type of research and support is. So... I'd like to thank all of you for for being on the program this evening. I'd like to thank all of you for the work you are doing with these children and these adults. And I hope that you'll continue to join us here at BrailleInstitute.org or AirsLA.org by listening to these podcasts, sharing them with others. And at this time, I'd like to ask if Sue may have the information or share her information where you could email her if you'd like to get on the uh, listserv so we can have your name on there, too. Thank you, Sue. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. Uh, If you have any any interest in, um, you know, continuing or getting on our our email list, uh, you can email me at S-S-T-R-A, S as in Frank, A-C-I, at Braille. Institute.org, and we'll make sure we get you an announcement of the next call. Um, our next call, and Dr. Bill, we were talking about doing a little deeper discussion into cataracts. How does that sound to you? It is February the, um, so sorry, February the 10th, February the 10th, which is a Tuesday, February 10th, and that would be um, a, a deeper discussion on cataracts. Okay, wonderful. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Mr. Burden, for recording this as always. You do such a wonderful job. Thank you, Sue, for putting this on. And Happy New Year to everybody. We'll see you next month.